Today's reading will be taken from Jonah 3, uh, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is God's word. Thank you for reading. Do please keep that passage open, Jonah chapter 3. And there isn't uh, an outline as such on the back of our sheets this week, but uh, I think we'll cope. Let me lead us in a prayer as we start. Let's pray. Our Father God, we recognize it's a spiritual thing, what we're doing now, that we desire to hear you speak to us, to hear your voice. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would take these words and speak them to us, address us, and we pray that we would respond as responding to you, our God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a starter question for ten. What do the following people have in common? What do the following have in common? John Newton, 18th century sailor, slave trader, author of the song Amazing Grace. Jonathan Aiken, Conservative MP in the 1990s. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. And the Ninevites, the subject of today's chapter. Well, of course it is that they are all stories of great conversions, great turnarounds, great changes. Their lives were never the same again after God turned them around. You know, we, we'd have any one of them here today if they were all alive. Jonathan Ekin is the only one alive in our time, but But we would have them all here to speak. We would uh, arrange men's breakfasts, women's brunches. We'd arrange invitation dinners. We'd invite anyone and everyone, and people would come. And it would be great, wouldn't it, as John Newton would would tell us about how he was involved up to his neck in the worst excesses of the slave trade at the height of the British Empire, how he bought and sold slaves just like objects, like chattel. And then in 1748, he was converted, and he was turned around and never the same again. Jonathan Aiken would tell us about how he was caught up in a web of deceit. He was exposed publicly on a charge of perjury. He went to prison. His life fell apart. And then in prison, he was converted. And he speaks of his confession. He would tell us of his confession. And not just when he confessed his public wrongdoing, the perjury, but even the worst sins of his heart privately. He says this. He says, The sense of joyful release that flooded over me when I confessed and knew I was forgiven was glorious. And then the Apostle Paul, he would tell us about how 
he was on his way to murder and imprison some more Christians when, of course, he met the Lord Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. He was turned around and never the same again. And then the Ninevites, the men and women of Nineveh would come up. And what a turnaround they could tell us about. In chapter 3, verse 4, you're about to be overturned in 40 days. You've got 40 days. That's your stay of execution. And then through dramatic faith and repentance, we reach verse 10. The Lord relents from sending disaster. He gives them what they do not deserve. Well, we'd, uh, we'd have them all here to speak, to give their testimony. And we'd be right to do so. We'd have them all here for the very good reason that they tell us in very clear terms what God is actually like. They testify to what God is like. He is a God who gives people what they do not deserve. A God who gives people what they do not deserve. That's what grace is. And so the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Timothy 1.16, describing his testimony and, and what it really tells you, he says these words, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Examples like Paul and the others, they tell us just how patient and kind God is with sinners. They tell us that God is a God who gives people what they do not deserve. He's a God of grace. Now, Jonah knows that. And you know that too. We, we've just sung about that. God is a God abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. Jonah knows it. Chapter 4, verse 2. Just look on to that verse. Jonah sums up in a statement form what God is like. He is slow to anger. He doesn't give punishments to people that they deserve. He gives them what they do not deserve because he is rich in love. That's essentially what that confession in chapter 4, verse 2 means. God is a God who gives people what they do not deserve. That's what you expect from this God. And chapter 3, we're to know, is, is really just acting that out. What Jonah says in statement form in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 3 just acts out. It dramatizes for us. Chapter 3 is there to teach us that God gives people what they do not deserve. That's the conclusion in verse 10. He gives the Ninevites, in the end, what they do not deserve, goodness and life instead of death. But if that's their testimony of God's grace, what about you? What about you? When was uh, the last time you were called to uh, speak at a men's breakfast or come and speak uh, as a keynote speaker? When was the last time somebody phoned you up and said, uh, we'd love you to come and speak because uh, your life is just such a great advert for God's grace, how he's turned you around. Please come and speak. It hasn't happened to me. Has it happened to you? And maybe we're glad, actually, we don't get phone calls like that because we know the words of amazing grace. We, we could say the confession of Jonah 4, verse 2, but we're a long way from feeling God's grace. We're a long way from the experience of it. And we look maybe wistfully at uh, those stories, great stories of John Newton and the Apostle Paul and, and maybe even the Ninevites and think, wouldn't it be great to sense that, that joyful release again, that grace again? And, and maybe part of us looks at, at their story and says, well, we could never be like that. That could never be our story because they've got such a dramatic and, and colorful past by which we mean a wicked past. You know, they were involved in the worst excesses of evil. So, of course, it's more pronounced that they testify to the greatness of God's grace. It's just a bit less pronounced for us. It's ordinary evil and ordinary grace. Well, chapter 3 says to us today that we must 
have a testimony to God's grace like this. We must have that. Everybody here must advertise constantly in their life that God is a God who gives people what they do not deserve. We must have that testimony. Well, if that feels like it's laying a burden on us that we we cannot bear, I hope that by the end of the chapter we'll see it's no burden at all. But we need to come to chapter 3 to see why it is that this must be our testimony too and how that can be. Come with me to chapter 3. It it divides very neatly, verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 9, and verse 10. Verses 1 to 4, we get God's message to Nineveh. Then Jonah falls out of the picture. In verses 5 to 9, we get the Ninevites' response. And then verse 10, we get God's ultimate response. He gives them what they do not deserve. Well, let's take those as they come. Verses 1 to 4, first of all. We see that actually God tells a great city what it deserves. God tells a great city what it deserves. So uh, come with me, verses 1 to 4. This is really where God says, 40 days and you will be overturned. That's all he says. I mean, do you notice in verse 4 that the message is, it's unadorned, it's unqualified. There's no exception clauses. 40 more days and you will be overturned. He simply tells them what they deserve. But there are, there are three little things in verses 1 to 4 that tell us something more is afoot. The first is everything's going to plan. I mean, it always does. God does as he pleases. We know in the book of Jonah, even despite Jonah's disobedience. But there's a change here because when God says, in a sort of carbon copy of chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, God says at the start of chapter 3, go Jonah to the great city of Nineveh. And he, he says it a second time. And we hold our breath, and then verse 3, it's not to be taken for granted, Jonah actually obeys. He actually goes. Everything is going according to plan. This is happening as God wants it to happen. But the second thing is that verses 1 to 4 are dominated by one big idea. Great. Nineveh is a great city, verse 1. The uh, the NIV translators, they do us a bit of a disservice in verse 3 because they translate that phrase, a very important city, when in fact they should translate it, a great city to God. That's what it says, a great city to God. How great? Well, it takes three days to travel the breadth of the city, again, to tell us this is a great city. Now, this is like a a trigger word in Jonah. We've talked a little bit about this before. But it always gets mentioned, or almost always mentioned, where it's something to do with uh, God being um, in control, it being in God's domain, God having a vested interest, it being God's prerogative. In chapter 1, he whipped up a great storm by sending a great wind. He delivered Jonah out of the belly of a great fish, chapter 2. All things in his creation domain. But he did all those great things, used all those great things, because he really has his eye on a great city, Nineveh, and that's what he comes to now. And he has a vested interest in this great city as creator. Jonah doesn't think that God has a vested interest in Nineveh. But we'll find out today that Nineveh is very much in God's domain. And then the third little thing that tells us more is at foot, more than meets the eye is going on in verses 1 to 4, is what we've learned from the last two chapters. When God speaks, his words are seasoned with life. They always are. Do you see the the message of verse 4? There is no escape. There's no escape clause. It's, uh, it's like one of those scenes in a James Bond film where someone's thrown in a pool with sharks. You know, there's just no way of escaping. Or in Indiana Jones, when the walls are coming in, there's no way out, there's no escape. 
A bit like in chapter 1. A ship on a sea in the midst of a great storm. Dry land is nowhere near. You can't make it. There's no escape. Or chapter 2. A man sinking to the bottom of the sea, entangled in seaweeds and death. There's no escape. Well, chapter 3, verse 4 is a bit like that. Forty days and you will be overturned. But we know that God is not a God of our nightmares. He is a God who deals life, not death. Could it even be that in this message, he intends to bring life? Well, that's exactly how the Ninevites take it. Let's come to verses 5 to 9. And the Ninevites here, they repent without exception. And do you see that uh, the Ninevites do everything right? From the very beginning, they believed God. That's faith, taking God at his word. They believed him. No delay, no cynicism, no uh, prove it to his prophet that we're going to be overturned in 40 days. I've uh, recently been reading through the book of Jeremiah. And for 44 chapters, there's a debate between God and his prophet on the one hand and the people of Judah on the other. And God says, you will go into exile. And they say, no, we won't. He says, you will. They say, no, we won't. They do the opposite of this. They don't take God at his word. But there's none of that with the Ninevites. There is no gap in time between verse 4 and verse 5. They believed God. They took him at his word. Now, the proof that they did that is is shown in verses 5 to 9. The proof of it. They declared a fast. You know, this is crisis time. This is no time for eating and drinking. This is a crisis time. It's a time to mourn. Put on sackcloth because you don't want to be seen in your normal clothes because that would that would communicate that everything was all right and everything is far from being all right. We dress in sackcloth in these times, they would say. It's a very visible symbol that we've got cause to mourn. We've been told we deserve death and we believe it. God has told us we deserve death and we believe him in 40 days we'll be overturned. Well, if there's no delay, they make no exceptions. Do you see? All of them. And then a different way of saying all of them. The greatest to the least includes everyone. All of them. From the great to the small ones. Now, verses 5 to 9 are a bit like a news headline and then the in-depth report. Verse 5 gives us the headline. Nineveh repent without exception. They're in uh, dust and sackcloth, fasting and sackcloth. And then verses 6 to 9, they expand on that. They give us, if you like, the detailed reports, how it was that people from the greatest to the least repented. Well, let's go in verses 6 to 9 from the greatest to the least. We start with the greatest one, the king, the king himself. Well, when news reached him, He rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. He said, I don't want to be seen today as a king. I want to get off my kingly chair and I want to take off my kingly clothes because today is not a day to be seen as a king. Today is a day to be seen as a man who deserves to die. So I'll put myself in the dust, the place of death, where we've all come from, Genesis 2. Because that is what I deserve. God has told me that's what I deserve. So in his actions, he says, I am a man who deserves death. And that is what is coming to me. Now, he hopes for something else. Verse 9 of the decree. Who knows? Maybe God will relent. He hopes for something else, but he knows what he deserves. Well, in those days, uh, with a city of three days spread, no modern communications, how do you get a message from the greatest to the least? Well, you do it by a royal decree. 
guarantees same-day delivery. So verse 7, he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. And have you ever read anything like it in your life? Remember, this is not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. You know, this is a legal document. It's not exaggerating. Look what it says. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What's the reason? Verse 9. Well, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Lots of those words, an allusion to Exodus 34. The song that we just sung, God is slow to anger. He relents from sending calamity. Well, look, at at least give them this. At least they're sincere. You know, they make no exceptions and they show their sincerity in that. You know, not not just fast, but don't even give your, um, your cattle its feed. Don't give your cattle water. You know, no exceptions. Well, I, uh, I spent a few weeks earlier in the summer uh, living on a dairy farm, uh, of all places. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe I was haunted by uh, the prospect of Ezra growing up in London, reaching age 18 and never having seen a cow. Um, but he's certainly seen lots of cows. We lived on this dairy farm surrounded by cows. And I spoke to uh, the farmer there, a man called Jim. And he told me that uh, he's got a name, a personal name, for every one of his cattle. And I saw him one day, and he, he can call them Betsy, Spotty, you name it. Any feature that stands out, he gives it a name. He's got a name for each of his cattle. Now, I understand that. I get that. That's okay. That, that's a farmer's prerogative. I, I understand that. But this? This seems a step too far. I mean, th- this seems like, like dressing up your, your cattle in a, in a Santa outfit at Christmas. You know, they share in the celebration too. And so here, well, put the cows in sackcloth because they share in the repentance too. It looks a bit ridiculous. Well, maybe we should cut them some slack. After all, they, they don't know how to relate to the living God. They are, in Jonah's terms, they're, they're out-and-out pagans, Gentiles. Uh, maybe a bit like John Newton before he was converted, buying and selling people like objects. He didn't know any better, didn't know how to relate to the living God. Maybe let's cut them some slack. Except the Gentile pagans in the book of Jonah that we've seen so far have been very astute indeed. They've spoken better than they know. Remember the captain of the ship in chapter 1? He, he says to a sleeping Jonah, sleeping prophet of God, Get up, who knows? Your gods may save us from perishing. Even in his ignorant speculation, he puts his finger on the truth about gods. Or the sailors themselves. When they discover God is the God of sea and land, they realize he's a God who must care about life and who can stop them perishing. Well, just like that, the Ninevites do everything right and get everything right about God. They repent to receive what they do not deserve. But do they even do right in dressing the cows in sackcloth? I mean, do they even do right in that? Well, I want to say especially in that. You'll have to bear with me on this, but uh, the greatest application for us today arises from that truth, those cows in sackcloth. You see, I say cows, but, but actually the text says beast. The greatest to the least, repentance sackcloth, man and beast. In the language of Genesis 1, this covers everything that has the breath 
of life in it. So what is coming is a message for everything and everyone that has the breath of life in it. That's the point. When we unravel this decree that the king of Nineveh sends, we discover that it is a masterclass in how you can testify to God's grace. I would sum it up like this. Let everything that has the breath of life in it, by repentance, seek from the Lord what you do not deserve. Let all creation, by repentance, seek from the Lord what you do not deserve. You see, we can only advertise a God of grace in our lives when we receive what we do not deserve. And the Ninevites tell us that we do that by repentance, by turning back to God. I just want to uh, to illustrate the, the insight that they're showing here, to persuade us that they've got it exactly right. I want to report a bit of research I did this week. I uh, did a search on the words slow to anger. You know, words that only occur in that great formula in the Bible. Slow to anger and rich in love. What God is like. He gives people what they do not deserve. I searched through uh, the online Bible. And uh, in all its occurrences, you'll, you'll see this. Do it for yourself. It uh, comes up in Exodus 34, of course. Then it comes up in the Amaya. It comes up also in the Psalms. Now, in the Psalms, there's something very interesting. Because nearby to the statement that God is slow to anger and rich in love, we find again and again words like this. Let all creation give God praise. All creation receives from God what it doesn't deserve. Let all creation give God praise. Here's a taste from Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's the confession. Verse 9, what does it mean? The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, Lord. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In Bible terms, as soon as you say that God is slow to anger and rich in love, which Jonah knows well, the next thing that you should say is, let all creation give him praise, because all creation receives from this God what it doesn't deserve. We sang it earlier. One of the other psalms where this appears is Psalm 103. We sang this song, which is taken from that psalm. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. What does that mean? The next line. The Lord is good to all. He is compassion on all that he has made. And it ends. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Except that's not all the psalm says. The psalm says not just praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, all the works of your dominion, all creation. All creation is supposed to advertise this God of grace, and the Ninevites tell us that we do that. We receive what we do not deserve from God by repentance, by turning back to him, by leaving our evil ways and turning back to him. So let me say that uh, the Ninevites are not one more in a long list of testimonies that we cannot imitate. Now, we must imitate them. We must have their testimony of God's grace because their message is all creation, all with the breath of life, without exception, turn back to God to receive what you do not deserve. Well, let me pause and uh, and turn to us for a moment. Uh, One of the best things that uh, you could read alongside the book of Jonah is the book of Two Kings. It tells you what's happening in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time just before and during and after 
Jonah is ministering and prophesying before they go into exile in 722 BC. And they're doing anything and everything to secure their safety, to hedge their bets, to maintain their survival, to fortify their borders. The one thing they're not doing, and it comes up again and again with a repeated refrain, they did not turn from their evil ways. They did not turn. They did not turn. The one thing they needed to do, they did not turn. They didn't turn. And chapter 3 is pointed for God's people because it says, why do you think you're an exception? Why do you think you don't have to advertise God's grace by repentance too? And so repentance mustn't become redundant in our lives, in our Christian lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke truly when he said that the whole of the Christian life is repentance and faith. The whole of the Christian life is turning back to God, turning from our evil ways and turning back to him. It's not a one-off. It's a way of life. Because when we do that, when we receive what we do not deserve from God's hand, we testify to his grace. We testify that he is a God slow to anger and rich in love. Well, the Ninevites say, uh, repent, no exceptions. But we might be tempted to say, well, Surely we're an exception because we don't share in your evil and wrongdoing. After all, at the very start of Jonah, we saw there there are a city engaged in evil. Here they repent from violence and wrongdoing. But what does that really mean? Well, what they've done is that they've, they've treated the world like a playground without a creator God. That's what they've done. And so the Ninevites are quite happy to to trample on other people, other nations, to get ahead and succeed. They treat the world like a playground without a creator. It's what John Newton did when he was buying and selling slaves on the high seas between Africa and West, the West Indies. That's what uh, Saul of Tarsus was doing when he was minding the jackets while they were stoning Stephen, getting rid of an inconvenient person, treating the world and their lives like a playground with no creator gods. But the message of chapter 3 of Jonah is pointed for believers, because there is an especially Christian version of making an exception of ourselves, a way that we can abuse covenants, that special relationship we have with God, a way of saying, well, no, we are accepted from the obligation of all creation to show the goodness of God by, by turning back to him and receiving what we do not deserve. But we forget that in the covenant, we sit round the table with God, not as equals, No, we bring to the covenants our sin and our wickedness. God brings all the steadfast love and faithfulness. And in abusing the covenants, we make ourselves an exception, not needing to repent. We treat the word not as a theater to display God's grace, but as our playground too. It's what happens when uh, we regard ourselves as Christians, but we keep going back to that pornography that treats people as possessions and us as possessors. When we uh, keep on trampling on people's reputations in the city to get ahead, you sort of have to in these times, don't you? It's, It's a recession, we tell ourselves. Or maybe it's the continual gossip behind closed doors. We assassinate reputations and people's characters. That phrase is true, stabbing people in the back. That's what we do when we speak against them. We kill them when they can't see our faces. Or maybe it is that we we don't maintain our honesty and integrity in a world of deceit, a workplace of deceit, maybe, because it's just impractical. The world is our playground, too. 
And we think we're accepted from showing the grace of the Creator because we refuse to repent. Well, chapter 3 of of Jonah says quite simply, turn from those evil ways, stop them, desist, leave them behind, forsake them. Don't make an exception on the basis of your status. The king has given us a lesson in that. He gets off his throne, he takes off his kingly robe. Oh, that the kings of Israel had done that. Oh, that our nation today would pass a decree like he passed. Oh, that we in our own lives would pass a decree like that. And don't be confused by the garments and the sackcloth and the dust. But do it if you choose. But more importantly, the Bible says, it's not that you rend and tear your garments in sorrow, but your heart. And you do that. The key way you do that is you turn from your evil ways. That's the key thing in the decree. Cease from them. Now, since uh, the 16th century... Christians maybe get a bit nervous about a verse like uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. They think, oh, is this salvation by works? God saw what they did in turning from their evil ways, and he relented from sending disaster. That sounds like salvation by works. It sounds like God looking to see what they do and then acting in grace. It doesn't sound like grace at all. But actually, all these works are, it's just the public evidence of their faith. It's just the public evidence of what we were told at the start of verse 5, they believed God's words. This is the proof of it. It's, uh, it's beautiful and important to do what we did earlier today, to gather and publicly confess our sins and repent. That is very important, and that is very right to do. But even more important and more right is that we forsake those ways. We don't persist in the ways that we know are wrong. We leave them behind It would be perverse if we left today and decided that we were accepted from this obligation to repent. Now Jonah, or rather the Ninevites, have given us a master class. There is no such thing as an exception, not in God's creation. All creation is supposed to bless this Lord as the God who gives us what we do not deserve. And we can only do that by turning from our ways. See, if we decide that it's not important for either us to repent or or even anyone else to repent... Remember, Jonah has also accepted the the Ninevites. He'd be happy enough for them not to repent, it seems, in chapter 1. You're sort of saying against the psalmist, it's not right for God to be blessed by all creation. You're saying, no, God is not kind in all his works. Let him not be blessed by all his works, all his dominion. But today is the very important key to evangelism. It says that evangelism is just testifying to the world that God is a God who gives what he does not deserve. And it needs to begin today at home with us by repentance. That's what Israel needed to do then. That's what we need to do today. And if we do that, then we have a living testimony to God's grace. If that is our way of life, then our way of life will be an advert to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, as we finish, I want to uh, I want to tell you something I like to think as I read through Jonah, particularly Jonah chapters two and three. I like to think that uh, when Jonah walks through the city in uh, the start of chapter three, he he smells of the inside of a fish. You know, I, I like to think that uh, you know he's got bits of seaweed and kelp wrapped around him. I like to to think that you know he's fresh from the bottom of the sea, and you can tell. 
I like to put it together that uh, here's a man who comes from, from, um, to life from death, and here's the people who repent. And uh, there's no reason really in the text to, to, to think that. But there is a sense in which chapter 2 and 3 do go together. They do belong together. If you just flick forward with me to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, page 978. I should have had this read, actually. But Matthew, chapter 12. And this is Jesus Christ speaking. And he says to the Pharisees who have said in verse 38 of chapter 12, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. You know, prove to us that we should do something, that we should repent in effect. Verse 39, Jesus answered, A wicked wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man, that is Christ, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. You see, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Jonah do go together in this sense. If a prophet comes to you and he smells of death, if a prophet comes to you and the grave clothes are fresh on, and you can tell that they have come from death to life, That is the greatest reason in the world. You'll never get a greater reason to repent and turn back. When a prophet comes to you who has come back from the dead to life, there's only one thing we need to do. The whole world is to turn back to him, to repent. The whole world. And so when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the Bible tells us we have there the greatest reason for the whole world to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. And in his death and life, he embodies what we deserve in his death. That's what we deserve. And he embodies in his life, in his resurrection, what we receive at his hand, what we do not deserve. Because this is what faith expects. It expects God's grace. Newton's famous song, Amazing Grace, which we're going to sing in a moment, wasn't its original title. It wasn't originally called Amazing Grace. The original name was Faith's Review and Expectation. Faith's Review and Expectation. What faith expects is amazing grace. We've spent a lot of time in the last three weeks thinking, what do we expect from this God? And we've seen again and again, we expect life, not death. We expect amazing grace. And today the message is, that is a cause not to turn and run away like Jonah. It's not a cause to resist his ways, but it's a call to repent like Nineveh when we receive what we do not deserve. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we uh, we praise you um, for these words that call us back to you. And we pray that we would forsake all our evil ways, that our lives would be a constant turning back to you to receive what we do not deserve. We praise you that you are a God who is slow to anger, rich in love. And we desire to advertise that, and we pray that it would begin in our own lives, and it would begin today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.